Colossians 2, 6-7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk with him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And kids, you can head to Children's Church. Going to relocate the worship leader again. Good morning. Good to be with you all again this morning. Before we begin, I'd like to have a word of prayer and then get into what God has for us to gain from His Word today. Let's pray together. Father, I'm just asking that you will help me to step aside so that you may be heard and seen. Um, I stand here only by your grace that you could use someone like me to share a message. And we are all here by your grace that we would even be privileged to hear the message of your Son for us. And so as we are children, uh, do wrath but given grace. May we come before you all with anticipation as you speak, and may we receive, and may we live in the grace that you poured out upon us, I pray in the name of Jesus, amen. I was with you a couple weeks ago, and uh, that was a good time. We uh, were not here last week, and some of you may know why the reason for that was that we weren't not here was... Unfortunate, and I won't go into this at length or anything, but uh, a tragedy in our family. And uh, Jana's niece, my brother-in-law's daughter, was killed in an ATV accident the day after we were here two weeks ago. And, of course, that kind of turned our world upside down. Gentry was 19 years old, and uh, she uh, left quite a legacy of friends. Is this working? Okay. You want me to just kill this thing then? <laughs> we don't want to give a double thing here. And so uh, we were working through that, obviously, uh, a couple weeks ago and uh, through the last week or two and still are. And so I want to just say off the top that we are so appreciative to this church family, many of you who express love to us, and not only in words and in prayer, which are vital and important, but also through uh, bringing some food our direction. It was not an, a simple thing to have somebody come two and a half hours to bring us uh, a lot of those tasty treats, and we appreciate that, and as well as your concern. So you might continue to pray for the family in the meantime. Um, when I was here two weeks ago, we, uh, we shared together from Colossians chapter 3, and uh, how timely that message was, hopefully for all of us, but especially for us, and for me as as uh, the events unfolded just after that, the next day and, and onward, because we talked about the importance of allowing the gospel story to be that major story in our life that shapes everything else. And um, 
I gave you a challenge when I was here a couple weeks ago to, to select a passage of scripture that you would use as a meditation practice in your life. And, and I suggested that you meditate on it in the morning when you get up and at lunchtime and at supper time and before you go to bed at night. And I'm sure you all did that perfectly well, right? You know, every hand raised to the... Okay, I didn't do it perfectly either. But I will tell you that I began to jump back into that practice Sunday night when we were here two weeks ago and how important that was for the days that followed. Um, I was in Romans chapter 8, about the first 11 verses, and meditating on that. And so at that very beginning, it was helpful for me to just have that narrative of what Christ has done through his grace for us to be the backdrop. It doesn't make those things that we go through that are dark and troubling uh, easy, but it provides a foundation to go through those things. And so I was very grateful for that. I was thinking about that this morning as we sang the song just a couple songs ago, uh, Blessed Be Your Name. You know, that, you know where that's rooted, don't you? That's rooted in the book of Job, and it comes from his expression just after losing his children and his livestock and his home and everything else and his own health. And he says, you know, regardless of all the darkness that's around me, I still give God praise because he's in control. And that's the narrative that we need. Um, This stuff that we do when we give attention to God's word, when we set our minds upon it, when we allow it to dwell deeply in us, that's not just window dressing. That's important stuff. That's crucial stuff. That's what helps us to shape the rest of life around us. And uh, I found that very helpful, that when we have the Jesus story more deeply embedded in us, then we can go forward and live with his peace and giving him glory and radiating eternal influence to the people around us when we do that. And so I hope you'll continue to push forward in doing that. You know, if, if, you, if you failed miserably at it, well, this is another day to start again. And uh, we all live by grace, and we all fail and fall. And, and as I said, I didn't do as well as I'd liked at that. But let's continue to push forward and do that. Um, shaping the story. I want to come back to that for a moment and then get back into Colossians and to talk about some of the things that are here that help us understand how to better do that. Um, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that, that a very interesting passage appears when Paul is preaching to the Greek philosophers at the Areopagus in Athens. And he he pulls, Paul does, from the poets of their world and their culture and their experience, specifically from Epimenides of Crete, who had put together a, a praise expression to the god of Zeus, who was no god of all, uh, at all, of course, but who um, the people of that day revered and worshipped nevertheless. And it's a line that says, in him we live and move and have our being. From Acts 17, you'll find that in verse 28. And Paul takes that little phrase, and he turns it on his head, doesn't he? Because he, he uses that to be an expression of, in fact, we in the living God live and move and have our being. And so Paul baptizes that pagan verse, and I find it to be very instructive for our life. And, and I want to continue to have that as a backdrop as we think about how the gospel does shape us, because it is in him 
that we live or find our life. It is in him that we move or operate moment by moment. It is in him that we find our being. That is, that we be and that we become what God has intended us to be. The gospel story, the Christ story, provides us life. It provides us direction. It provides us maturity. And that story, as it continues to resound in our mind and our soul and our very heart, it begins to determine the trajectory of all of those mini stories in our life, all those little things and big things that we go through in our lives. And we begin to see them differently, and we begin to behave in the midst of them differently and become a different people and become a different church and become a different community as we listen to him. Well, two weeks ago, we began exploring that idea in Colossians chapter 3. And let's just return there for just a moment, and then we're going to leap forward in the book. Um, And we're going to do, as I think Jacob mentioned, we're going to do the prequel. We're going to go from what is in Colossians 3 and back up now today. But in Colossians chapter 3, this is the text we looked at two weeks ago. Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We noted by the the grace of God and by the work of Jesus that not only are those things that occurred in the gospel story the experience of Jesus, that he died, that he was raised, that he was ascended to the Father and seated at his right hand, that he's coming again soon. But we participate in that too because Paul says here in Colossians 3, as he does in places in Ephesians 2, that we also have died, we also have been raised, we also have in some way been seated with him in heavenly realms, and when he appears, we appear with him. So that story is ours too, and it begins to shape everything we see around us. That's the gospel message. But what I want to do today is to take that that we, that we considered a couple weeks ago from Colossians 3, and as we back up into the first two chapters of this same letter, we begin to see some deeper facets where Paul's not just saying, okay, this, this story that has these events as a part of it is not the only thing that shapes us, but the person who is the center of those events shapes our very person and our very story. Isn't it interesting that Mark begins his gospel account, his story of Jesus' life, with these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark's telling us right off the bat that I want to tell you this story that is good news, and this story is rooted in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And and certainly there are different ways to understand that simple phrase, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we might understand it as Mark is simply saying that Jesus is the one who announced the gospel. But I think it's more than that. It's also that Jesus performed the gospel. He went through those events that make up the content of the gospel. But I think he's even saying more than that. He's saying that Jesus himself is the gospel. He is the good news. And this Jesus is the one that we want to be the very core of our story. And Paul latches onto that same word gospel in the opening verses of this letter to the Colossians. In verse 5, he mentions the word gospel, and he begins to unpack the substance of that gospel. And if if you know nothing else about the letter to the Colossians in the New Testament, know this, that it is perhaps of all of Paul's letters the most, we're going to give you a theological word here, Christocentric. 
centered on Christ. Christ is the centerpiece. And I don't mean just in the sense that Paul uses the name of Jesus Christ a lot, but that he also, in the way he communicates it, not just the number of times he's mentioned, but the way he mentions Jesus becomes the very core of the gospel. So I want to spend just a moment this morning, first of all, just reading through. We're going to read through some sections that I'm not going to talk much about, but I want us to to have this story be heard in our minds. And I know sometimes uh, when we hear Scripture read, maybe it's a familiar passage and we check out a little bit. And I, I, I will confess I was guilty of this in earlier years in preaching where I'd say I'd get to the passage and I'd read kind of through it quickly because then I wanted to say what I wanted to say. And I found as I got older that, no, I'm going to slow down when I get to the Word of God because this is where God speaks clearly and unfiltered, and we need to hear what he says. And then if I have a few comments that might help, I can quickly do those. But let's hear what he has to say. And so let's begin at the very top of this, Colossians chapter 1, and I'll read through a part of chapter 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, 
became a minister. Let's stop there for a moment. Put your finger there and kind of hold your place because we're going to come back. Paul is unfolding for us the core of the gospel here. Some amazing things that he proclaims, that that Jesus is the head of all things, that he is our redemption, that he is our Lord. Some powerful things in this passage that we just read through that we could spend a long time, a series in itself of, of studying through and reading through and meditating on and unpacking and discovering the, the wonderful things that God has in this. It's fabulous. It's essential doctrine. But I'm going to do something daring that most preachers won't do. I'm going to hop over this because, you know, most of the times when you hear somebody preach through Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 is the core of what we focus on. And it is vitally important stuff. But I want us to keep going because Paul then says, okay, here's, here's the truth of what is in Christ. These are all essential, important things. But when he gets to verse 24 in that first chapter, he begins to get a little more personal. He says, okay, now here's where we can begin to discover what this really means. How this begins to dig into your soul and into mine. So pick it up there in verse 24. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Maybe we had to stop there. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what Paul's saying. He's not saying here, by the way, that, that the sufferings of Christ were inadequate and needed to be completed. He's saying that uh, as Christians we will continue to suffer in this world for his sake. And Paul's just saying, I'm, I'm adding to that that quota that's going to happen, and you will too. But he says, I'm doing that as part of what God has called me to in ministry. So verse 25, he says, of which I became a minister according to the the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. And here's what his ministry is, to make the word of God fully known. You might want to mark that phrase, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. What is this mystery? Verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glories of this mystery. The mystery is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Gets pretty personal, doesn't it? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Again, all that other stuff in the first chapter is very important. That Jesus is the head over all things, that he's redeemer, that he's Lord. But now it gets real personal because it's Christ in you and in me, the hope of glory. Paul says in verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. There's another important phrase to mark. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, here's another great phrase, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, that would be when the gospel first penetrated your life and your heart, all that stuff in the first part of the chapter that Jesus is, he says now it gets more personal. As you received him, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now think about that. Doesn't the gospel begin to just begin to get real invasive in your life, as Paul is unpacking it there? You look back over those phrases and you begin to see that the gospel's not done being preached when you pop up out of the baptistry waters. The gospel is not done in your life or my life after the baptismal clothes dry off. No, the gospel continues to be preached in our lives and taught in our lives and heard in our lives because he, the core of that gospel, is in us, the hope of glory. And Paul reveals through his prayer here that he desires that to become greater and fuller and deeper and more powerful in us. Again, you look back through there in verse 25 of the first chapter, to make the word of God fully known. And he means by that not only to reveal Jesus to all people, but to reveal all that Jesus is to all people. In verse 28 of that first chapter, he says that his job is to present everyone mature in Christ. You see, the story of Jesus must continue to grow deeper in us. He says in verse 2 of chapter 2 that his desire is that this gospel of Jesus would reach, that it would have an impact on us so that we as followers would have the riches of full assurance of understanding, the knowledge of Christ in our lives. And he says in verse 7 of chapter 2 that his greatest desire for us is that we be rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. You see, Christ is not only our rescue. We saw it in the passage two weeks ago. It alluded to it there in verse 4 of chapter 3 that Christ is also, Paul says there, our life. In him we live and move and have our being. And so Paul prays for a deeper understanding of that. I won't read it again, but verses 9 through 11 of the first chapter is this prayer of Paul for us, that we would have deeper understanding of Jesus, that we would have a more vibrant walk in him, and that we would have a greater discovery of the treasures that he brings. Now, as you read through this, there, there's, there's this common phrase, and it's, it's common in, in much of Paul's writing. It's just this simple two-word phrase, in Christ, in Christ. That's what he describes us as being, in Christ. And that little in preposition is a powerful preposition for Paul. He uses it so much. What does that mean? And after we kind of wrestle with that question, how is that done? What does it mean to be in Christ? We tend to think spatially or, you know, in in sometimes a, a physical way, but what does it mean to be in Christ? Let me give you a personal illustration that that kind of on the negative side showed me as I was thinking through this again over the last couple of weeks. What does it mean to be in Christ? I was reflecting a couple of weeks ago on my personal journey over the last few years. I 
I was in the ministry for 30 years full-time, and I stepped away about almost seven years ago. And one of the fears I had when I stepped out of that in a full-time role was, you know, when I'm away from that Christian bubble, will my faith somehow become a little weaker because all of that structure around me is gone? And I discovered two things after I had been away from it for a while. Number one was, thankfully, I didn't sense any isolation from God. But the second thing I discovered was that I did sense a tendency to drift from the story, that my Christ-centeredness did not seem as deep as I thought it would be. And that helped me evaluate how deeply I was in Christ. I looked back at my life before that, and I thought, well, in those times when I felt like I was a little deeper in Christ, maybe it was because I was around the Bible more. I was around Christian people more. I was around ministry activities more because that was a structure that was kind of part of the deal of who I was. But when I had the freedom to step away from that and then had to make those choices to be in those environments... It maybe was a little easier to drift away from it. And I began to wonder if if Christ had not become, in those years previous, more of an exoskeleton of my life. You remember your biology class of insects? The exoskeleton? Kind of the outward structure that held me together, rather than Jesus being the very bones of my life. The internal structure of my life. And so God has been teaching me those things about what being in Christ is. It's not this outward structure that kind of imposes itself on me. It's this inner structure that gives me strength and that helps me to walk in him. In Christ is a matter of union and communion. Again, go back through chapter 1 and 2. Read these phrases. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Mature in Christ. The riches of full assurance of understanding. The knowledge of Christ. And Paul again says in Colossians 2.6, to walk in Christ. Isn't that an interesting expression? He, he calls us to walk in Christ. If you or I had written that, well, I would have written it how? To walk with Christ. Paul says walk in Christ. I don't know exactly what that means, but it's a lot more intense, isn't it? To walk in Christ. It's a relationship which transcends the casual and the occasional and the superficial. It's something much more deep than that. And if you look there at verse 7 of chapter 2, when Paul goes on to talk about what that means to walk in him, he says that we should be rooted and built up in him. And so there's two images there, aren't there? To be rooted and built up, the image of a tree rooted, the image of a foundation of a building built up in him. Well, roots and foundations are not casual, they're not occasional, they're not superficial, they're essential images, aren't they? Walking in Christ means we're rooted. We're built from the ground up in him. And I take you back to that image that I shared two weeks ago from Psalm 1, where the psalmist talks about the man who is blessed. is not the one who clings to the things of the world, 
but he is the one who is planted like a tree by streams of water, rooted. That word planted almost has both of those images of rooted and built, doesn't it? A solid establishing in the very things of God. And Jesus uses much that same imagery when he talks about what it means to be in him. If you look at Jesus' words in John chapter 15, this is getting near the end of his life before the crucifixion. He is uh, teaching his disciples one last time in an extensive section of John's writing. In John 15 and verses 4 and 5, Jesus says to his followers, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. That's what it means to be in Christ. And yet, there's one more image I want to share with you that Jesus shares just a couple of chapters over in John's writing that's really the mind blower. Jesus has kind of transitioned from his teaching at those last hours before his arrest to now praying before the Father. And in John chapter 17, which is the record of that prayer, the longest prayer we have noted from Jesus, He's prayed for himself and his mission. He's prayed for the disciples of his time. And then he turns the page and he begins to pray for you and me, which I think is a neat part of that prayer. He's looking down through the centuries and the millennia, and he's praying for followers of Jesus. And look what he says in verses 20 and 21 of John 17. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples who were with him in that day, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. Here's what he prays for them, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Let that rattle around your head for a minute. Jesus prays that we would be in fellowship with the Father and Son, not in any casual way, not in any superficial way, not in any occasional way, but in the same way that the Father and the Son are in each other. Wow. Now, don't go too far with that. It's obvious we are not deity. We are not to be called to be God. But there is something there about an, in, an intense fellowship Jesus prays for us, and because he prays for it, also intends that we be able to realize that. That our intimacy with him transcends just the occasional, just the superficial. An intimacy which really is breathtaking, but it's not unprecedented. Because what I think Jesus is reflecting on as he prays that, and what Paul is talking about in Colossians when he calls us to be in Christ. They're, they're calling us to the restoration of what had been at the creation. Spend some time this afternoon, if you would, reading through Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and see, and even into chapter 3, how God originally designed things, that intimate relationship between himself and created humanity and how close that was. And then when that when that connection and that story was deeply shattered, 
God began in that very moment in history, moving toward reestablishing that story, bringing us back into that relationship. And that's what Paul's ministry is about. And that's what Jesus' prayer is about. And that's what the gospel is about. Having us come back into him again. And that really explains some of the child language that Jesus and his followers use in the New Testament. Like when Jesus meets with Nicodemus in that evening get-together. And in John chapter 3, he says, what you need, Nicodemus, is to be born again or to be born from above, to, to start that relationship all over in a more intimate way with God who made you. It's like the words that Jesus shared in Matthew chapter 18 when he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He calls us to that that rediscovered, restored relationship of intimacy that God had originally created. That's what being in Christ really looks like. And so it is that John, in the opening words of his gospel, explains a little bit more when he says, to all who did receive him, meaning Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, the gospel is calling us back home. It's not just about justifying us before God so that our sin won't condemn us forever. And that's huge in itself. I'm not making light of that at all but it's calling us back home to being in him as God originally intended us to be. It's the intimacy of a child with a father, calling us back to a relationship with him which is rooted in humility and in dependence and in trust. And so the story of Jesus and the story he brings is not new, but it's, it's renewed. And that's what Paul says, I'm laboring to have restored in you. That's why Paul's passion revealed there in these opening chapters of Colossians are so, in a sense, repetitive, but also uh, passionate, that he wants us to be mature in Christ, to have the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of Christ, to be rooted and built up in him. That's what he wants for us. And if that's what being in Christ is, how do we get there? Now, this guy has no silver bullet to address that. But I, I do think that there are some things we can do to move in that direction. And, and it, it begins with what we talked about two weeks ago in allowing the story to shape us. But how do we allow that story to shape us? Because when we read these things that, that Paul is desiring for us and the thing that Jesus prayed for us, sometimes we sit back and we think, well, that's rather implausible that we can get to that degree. You really think... You know, in this weakness that we have, this frailness that we possess, we can never get to that place. And the first thing I would say that it is, it is a process. But it starts and it continues with the gospel. We're people in process. Even the followers of Jesus, as, as dominant as they became in the scope of history in the days that the ministry of Jesus concluded and they carried it on, um, they were a work in progress, weren't they? We know that. 
It's interesting to see how they move from being called by Jesus to kind of just tagging along with him, and then in later years to in later months being with him more consistently until you get to the point where Jesus says to them in John 15, remain in me. He's not just, not just follow me, not just hang around with me. Remain in me. Abide in me. Be attached to me. And he knew full well, and he said that, that he was going to be gone soon physically. He said, you still, you'll do that. You'll still remain in me. For us to have that happen, we have to have our minds set upon that, don't we? Colossians 3. To set our minds upon that story so that we can become those people that Paul describes there in Colossians 3, verses 5 through 17. Those who have, who have put to death all these certain things that are in violation of the way God wants us to live. We put off those things, and then he later talks about those things that we put on, that we're raised up to be. He calls us to that kind of a look. But how do we cross the bridge from those who have been rescued from our sin to those who are transformed in the midst of it and who live differently? Let me suggest to you some essential elements that are a part of that. And the first one has already been given to us if we're a follower of Jesus, and that is the restored fellowship has begun because of new life by the Spirit of God in us. And we will never get to any of these other things successfully and have them be helpful to us unless we begin there. That through the work of Jesus and through the coming of his spirit into our life, we have this power to live by. In Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, Paul says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and the assumed answer to that question is for us who are followers, yes, that's true. If he is dwelling in us, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, that tremendous power will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So we, right out of the gate... have been promised the presence and the power of his personal spirit working with us and in us. Now, that doesn't mean he completely takes over because we still have a lot of resistance to that. And so that's where allowing this gospel story to shape us comes in. As we allow the spirit to speak louder into our lives, we do one of those things that this is another element that we talked about two weeks ago, to allow the word of Christ to dwell in you richly, Colossians 3.16. To have that story be the backdrop of your life. To go over it and over it and over it. To have the gospel continue to be preached in our lives. But another element is then, as we hear that story, we move into more and more compliance with it and obedience to it and following what it's all about. In John 15, again, another section of that passage we've referred to a couple of times now. Jesus said that abiding in his love means keeping his commands, being obedient to him. And as we do that, the story then moves from being on a page or even just in our mind and memory to being lived out in our lives. And what happens is God's spirit begins to work with that like soft clay, and he begins to build better structure into us as we begin to live that more naturally. It's, it's a work in progress, but he does that. And then one more element I want to mention this morning, and there are other things too, but one more that I think is important, and we're going to land hard on this one as we wrap up this morning. That's the element of prayer. 
And prayer in the sense that I realize that I cannot make this happen. This business of being in Christ, of really having my soul shaped by him in a radical way, I can't do that on my own. And so in prayer, I come before him submissive and I say, God, help me with this because you know what's in me. And it's not always Christ, the hope of glory. It's other stuff. It's me. It's all of my aberrant desires. It's all of my distractions. It's all of my weaknesses. And so you take these elements of his spirit's work and and uh, focusing on the word and obedience to the word and praying, and it's all like this dance of grace that mingles together. That It's not a structured order. You do this one day, and then you do this one day. It's, it's the spirit of God taking all of those elements and working them in us so that we find as time passes, Christ in us is becoming a greater reality. We're giving him an environment in which he can work And the Holy Spirit begins to breathe into us greater life and encourage into us and enable in us a more submissive soul. And he roots in us Christ. He builds in us Christ. And he teaches us to walk in Christ. And so my challenge for this week for you, in in addition to keeping with the word of Christ dwelling richly in you, continue to do that is to maybe shift your prayer focus a little bit. And if you're already where I'm going to talk about being here, that's great. Keep it up. But if you're not, this might be a good shift for you. We pray for a lot of different things in our lives, but maybe we don't pray always for these things that Paul seems to be rather obsessed with. He alluded to it a little bit in his prayer in Colossians 1, but... I want you to, for a moment, turn over to Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians 3. And there are two prayers that Paul offers up here as he writes to the Ephesian Christians. And you may have noticed in the last time I was here and today that Ephesians, Colossians, there's a kind of connection written about the same time. And so he has a lot of parallel thoughts. But in Ephesians, Paul gets a little more, um, a little more descriptive, a little, a little longer with the pen in telling us what it is we should pray for as he prays for us these things. Listen to this prayer that Paul offers up for the Ephesian Christians in chapter 1, verse 16, where he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? You ever pray for that stuff? I find I don't pray for that stuff as much as I should. Praying for those things, to having the eyes of my heart enlightened, praying that I would discover the riches of his glorious inheritance, praying that I would discover the immeasurable greatness of his power, praying that I would discover the, 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 the hope to which he has called me. And that's the story that will shape you. When that begins to become more obvious to you, wow, this is the domain that he has put me in. And then go to chapter 3. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. 
Paul says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, sounds like Colossians 2.7, doesn't it? May have strength to comprehend with all the saints, listen to this, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. To, see the, see the turn of that phrase? To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. To know what you can't know. To know beyond what our human mind can know. Paul says pray for that. I'm praying for that. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, because there are always disbelievers, aren't there? And I'm one of those who has been there and probably will continue to struggle with that. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, because we, we just think, really, can this happen? According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let me just ask you, what if we as a church family prayed that prayer for not only ourselves but for each other every day? In addition to praying for the physical needs that exist and for the financial needs that exist and for the relationship needs that exist and all those things being important, but to really root ourselves in this because if that begins to become a reality in us, it so shapes our life, that story does, that then the people that we've prayed for and that they're changing through that story, then they're able to deal with so many of those other things that we pray for on the front lines. Would you take one of those prayers and begin to make it a regular part of the rotation of your prayer life, either in the first chapter there or chapter 3? And see how it begins to change you and see how it begins to change your church family. Pray that we might be in Christ in a greater way. I want to close the prayer and I want to use that chapter 3 prayer as, as the structure for how we wrap up this morning. So Father, we come before you. You being the Father who is the Father over every family and who is above all names. We pray that according to the riches of your glory, that you may grant to us strength and power through your Spirit so that Christ may dwell in our hearts more fully through faith. That you might root us and ground us in your eternal wisdom, that you might root us and ground us in your eternal love, that we might have the strength to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of who you are and of your love, to know the love of Christ that is even beyond our understanding, and that we might be filled with your fullness. And Father, would you help our doubt would you help us when we look at these things that Paul 
said are supposed to become reality in us and the things that he prayed for and we say, yeah, but that's, that's another kind of person. That's not me. That's another time. That's another place. That's, that's kind of the ultimate goal, but nobody really gets there. May you take our doubt, Father, and may you begin to erase it as your spirit does begin to perform those things in us. And as we see that happen, may we never for a moment give thought to, gee, look what I've done. But may we grow in our appreciation for grace. May we grow in our humility and say to you, Father, to you be the glory for all that you do in us. We thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to share a couple of stories that happened during my childhood with you this morning. Um, in both cases, I found myself spending an evening at home with my two brothers while mom and dad were out. And uh, on this this first story, it doesn't really matter who came up with the idea, but it was Brian. <laughs> and uh, he thought we should uh, get a basketball goal and screw it to the wall and play some hoops. And... Uh, in that time, we had beautiful wood paneling in the house, and he had come up with this jar of wood putty-like stuff, and we'd wipe some on the wall, and it was a dead ringer match. It just matched perfectly. And so uh, the plan was to screw the goal to the wall and place hoops for a while and take it down and fill up the holes, and that was it. And another time, we decided that we wanted to shoot BB guns in the house, and obviously you can't do that without taking some precautions so we got some cardboard out and we did some test shots and we figured out you know exactly how much cardboard you needed to safely stop a bullet and uh, when we figured that out we simply put that cardboard up against a, a de- an old wooden desk that mom had recently refinished and we started shooting now in both cases uh, even though careful plans were made things went terribly wrong uh, in the case of the basketball game Uh, we failed to notice that the screws were slowly getting pulled out of the wall, like ripped out of the wall. And when we went to cover the holes, we had a serious texture problem. And somehow the the color didn't seem to be as good a match as we thought either. And in the case of the BB guns, um, it turns out after hundreds of bullets, the cardboard started to get all chewed up. And when we pulled it away from the desk, we found a desk that was just riddled with uh, bullet holes, and uh, again, it didn't take mom long to, to notice that. And so what does this have to do with communion? Well, unfortunately, it's all too similar uh, to the way or to the process that I go through sometimes when I take communion. Let me explain. Uh, my brothers and I, we put a lot of thought into those plans. They were solid. I mean, we, we, we were dealing with an important issue, that being keeping mom and dad happy and in the dark. And so we put some serious thought into it, and the problem was, after considering everything, after we uh, planned the work and worked the plan, uh, then we just took off and got wrapped up in our fun, and we never thought about it again until we were done. And all too often for communion, uh, communion time, for me, runs a similar course. 
Um, I take the bread, which represents his broken body, and I take the juice, which represents the blood that was shed, and I meditate on the fact that all this pain and suffering was an awesome act of love from my God to me. I spend this time of communion, and then I leave through those doors and proceed on uh, with life as though it never happened. And just like the plans uh, my brothers and I made, there's also been a lot of thought put into this part of the service. I mean, Christians all over the world are having a similar service, just like ours, this morning. And, and uh, when you read about Jesus in the upper room before the crucifixion, and when you read the words that he said, and when you read about the early church and after the resurrection, um, you can see that this is an important issue. And, and what we do here is very good. It's... Uh, a very meaningful and respectful way to remember what our Savior has done. And to the best of our knowledge, we're doing exactly what Jesus has asked us to do. But this idea of communion is not something that uh, should be looked at like it's a once-a-week deal. Communion time is not like a birthday party where you celebrate it one day and forget about it the next. Communion with God should be every day, all day. And I would argue that communion with God is the very reason we are created. The Bible says that we are created for the glory of God. But glorifying God is not something we do after communioning with Him, but instead it's done by communioning with Him. This time should be used as a springboard for the start of a full week of constant communication or communion with God, which is strived to keep what our Savior has done for us on the front of our minds each and every day. As this part of the as this time this morning, I would encourage you to ask yourself. How will you extend communion to last all week? Now, maybe it's uh, by accepting Dave's challenge of praying that God will, would help you be in Christ. Um, what does that look like for you? Again, what will you do to keep your conversation with God going until you find yourself here again with another opportunity to take the Lord's Supper? Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we do come to you now, and we're thankful for this part of the service, and we're, we're thankful for the emblems that you gave us and, and what they represent, and um, Father, we also come um, to this part of the service asking, asking that you would help uh, clear our minds and, and allow us to focus, and, um, and we ask that you would extend that um, throughout the week, Father. We know, we know our shortcomings, and um, we know we can't get there without you, and we're just, uh, again, come to you and ask that you would help us to keep this um, this conversation with you going for the entire week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.